The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to try to establish some continuity as far as the preaching of God's Word, in May I began speaking to you about the Ten Commandments. And you may remember I had two introductory messages and I realized I can summarize those two whole sermons in a couple of sentences. And you say, why don't you just do that in the first place? Well, the first sermon told you that the Ten Commandments are to tell us what sin is. The second sermon told you that In a positive note, the Ten Commandments tell us who God is. And then we launched into those commandments, and I looked at the first four, which are all God-directed commands relating to worship, to who God is, His being, no images of Him, keeping His name holy, keeping His day holy. And then I got to late June when I began what we call the second table of the law, the second portion of the commandments with number five in verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. And I said, here's the cornerstone of human society. And the rest of the commandments do relate to how we interact with people in the world or with possessions and so on. But I was not able to continue, so that badly disrupted series now resumes with an extremely short verse Verse 13 of Exodus 20, I actually say I can't ever remember that I've had a shorter text to preach on than Exodus 20, 13. I will read it and then also read a supplementary part I want to refer to if you want to put your finger in Matthew chapter 5. First, the very short text of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder And now to the New Testament, the words of Jesus, and he's actually commenting on the law in Matthew 5 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just back up there a bit and point out verse 517. Jesus says, don't think I have come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. And then he's speaking about carrying the law deeper than most people ever do in verse 21. You have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. For truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last 
penny. This is God's word. Let us pray for just a moment. Father, take this word, both in the law that you gave on Sinai and to the way in which Jesus showed us to understand the law deeply and let our hearts be shaped and even transformed, not by this mere doing of good deeds, but by the deep understanding as your spirit works in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The paper says a local mother wept in Lancaster County Court this past week. I don't know if any of us could could even imagine the emotions she was experiencing. For this particular mother was there to witness her 23-year-old and 25-year-old sons, both of them, being sentenced to life in prison convicted of the murder and robbery of a Quarryville man in 2012. And the newspaper tells us that she said, you raise your children to know the difference between right and wrong, and you think they've learned. Then she added this, my boys were not the monsters who acted on that day. Mom, No one's saying your boys were monsters, but they were the ones who acted on that day by their own admission. They told the court they were. And they proved that the impulse to do murder is not something that is consigned to people who are monsters, to the Hitlers and the Saddam Husseins and the Mao Zedongs and the Stalins of this world. They proved what our texts are teaching today, that murder is not very far away from the hearts of normal, everyday people, even from us. I let my mind go across an imaginative journey to think about the way murder dominates our lives. Oh, not that we necessarily have someone in our family being murdered, or we ourselves are going to be murdered. That's probably a very small percentage of happening to people in this room. And yet we watch television news, and we don't flinch, and we don't weep too much when we see hundreds being murdered in the streets of Egypt in a single day. We have murder on all of our entertainment media. I don't know how TV would have a program almost, if murder wasn't involved. My wife and I, for a long time, I don't know what you think of this program. You can tell me later. But the program called Bones is a strange program about how science reconstructs crimes from the bodies that are found of murder victims. And that's entertainment, folks. The George Zimmerman trial, the O.J. Simpson trial, every time there's a great celebrated trial. We watch it. We discuss it. And there's that silent murder that's going on all the time. As abortion on demand in our country takes the lives and shamefully eliminates the inconvenient unborn child who now can be removed by a certain pill that's available to a 14-year-old girl without their parents' permission. Wow. 
we're really technologically advanced in the science of murder. Video games. Our children blast away as their superhero aims all kinds of automatic weapon blasts at imaginary villains mowing them down on the video game, and that's entertainment, folks. We certainly have a culture that has acclimatized itself to violent death, both real and imagined. Well, when we deal with the Ten Commandments, we certainly expect there are some people in the society who are going to quibble with or argue against some of the commandments, particularly the first set. They they aren't going to like the idea that there's only one true God who can be worshipped. They are not going to like the idea that they are supposed to consecrate a day to worship Him. Uh, They can't be expected to like the idea that he's against adultery because that would be seen as forestalling some of their fun. But we would like to think that the average person in the public would not have a problem with the Sixth Commandment and would agree with us that murder is bad all the time. And yet we're being told in the Scripture today that if we really comprehend what murder is and where it comes from, it isn't something that's just out there on the screen in the Arab world and in the angry streets of Cairo. It's not just something that occurs once in a great while with a shooting in Lancaster or York. It's inside of us. And we're actually guilty of harboring the root of it on a daily basis. The root of murder is in us, and we don't need a blood-drenched dagger or a smoking gun to be accused of it. Now, the Scripture says that as human beings, we owe our existence initially to God's creative act of us as human beings in His image. We alone are the pinnacle of the creation. The, the evolutionary story is a lie if it makes you believe in macroevolution, that is the idea that the species called man came from some lower species called lizard or whatever you will, and somehow we crawled out of the slime and, and became Beethoven or Einstein. Didn't happen. God created man as his special creation, and he put in man a reflection of himself, finite we are, finite minds, finite bodies, fallen in sin. Nevertheless, as finite beings, we are made to reflect the infinite glory of God in Christ. And we do it poorly because of our sin. But nevertheless, God made us to do that, and we're the only creatures that have that dignity, that value, and that capability. And therefore, there's a thesis about us and the life that God has given us that our lives are special. They're sacrosanct because of the Spirit of God invested in us. He invested in us in a way He did not invest in any animal creature. And so our thesis regarding commandment number six says this, except under very exceptional biblical circumstances, Any premeditated assault on another human life is an assault on the Spirit of God whose image is in us. And I'll explain what I mean by biblical exceptions in a minute. Today, my first 
concern is to define terms. We have to look at this very brief text, you shall not murder, and make sure we define the terms of it. And we need to bring in then some other scripture to help us understand its implications. Now, anytime I say anything about the King James Bible that isn't 100% complimentary, I, I make a few people unhappy. But the King James Bible translation of Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder, is simply not accurate. The King James says, you shall not kill. That is too broad a word to convey the meaning of the text. It does not mean causing any kind of a death. It does not mean swatting a mosquito, butchering a pig for your dinner, shooting a deer in the forest in autumn. And in fact, as we'll see in a few minutes, it doesn't even mean every instance of taking a human life. The modern translation is accurate at this verse when it says, you shall not murder. The biblical languages are so wonderfully precise, both Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New, they're they're often much more precise than English. We have one word, kill. The Hebrew has a lot of words for kill. The Hebrew word ratzah occurs here, and it has a very specific meaning. It means premeditated, intentional homicide. That Hebrew word is never used in the Old Testament to speak of a human death that's caused by an accident or an act of self-defense or in warfare or in the case of lawful capital punishment. It's used when someone goes out in anger and with intent and kills another human being intending to do that and for no good reason. The earliest Ratzah killing in the Old Testament, of course, was Cain. I could have asked you that as a quiz, and many of you would have gotten it right. Cain killing Abel in Genesis 4. Here we had the first human family, the first pair of brothers, and we have a murder. And Cain ended his brother's life for no reason other than apparently than, than some kind of jealousy. He was really mad at God, and he killed his brother. And ending a life as Cain did was done in such a way that clearly God indicated it was a grievous offense. The Lord revealed to the mind of Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now, God never said, Cain, you know, you you killed a chicken and its blood cries out from the ground. You had to put a horse down because it was too old and its blood cries out from the ground. No, you killed your brother in murderous, angry intent for no good reason, certainly not for a God-sanctioned reason, and his blood cries out. Why? Because his life is a holy thing. His life bears my image, and therefore his murder cries out. Genesis 2 and 3 and 4 all testify that we are God's unique beings. We are spiritual mirrors made to reflect the nature of God. We alone pray. We alone seek after God. We alone repent of sin. We alone have eternal souls. I'm sorry, deer are nice creatures, but they don't have those things. Pigeons don't have those things. Men and women have the image of God, and therefore their lives are sacrosanct. 
Now, God didn't kill Cain on the spot. He wonderfully showed mercy to him. He let him live, in a sense, as a silent and suffering. Really, it appears he suffered the rest of his life in his guilt and his shame. And his life was a kind of memorial to the shame of murder. And we see in Genesis how violence began to spin out of control from Cain onwards. In fact, by Genesis 4.23, the same chapter in which Cain killed Abel, we have Lamech, a distant descendant now, many generations have passed to get to Lamech. And here's Lamech, who's the boasting, arrogant warrior who stands and says, if anyone harms me or harms my family, 77 of them will die. Here's the ultimate man of arrogant violence spinning out of control. Genesis 6.11 goes on to report just before the time of the flood that the earth became corrupt and full of violence. Would anybody doubt that that sentence applies to our world today? That the earth has become corrupt and full of violence? We read in our newspaper somebody's having a picnic in a city backyard and an argument erupts and, uh, you know, instead of somebody saying, well, I'm really angry at you and I guess we're not going to have any agreement here so I'll just go home. Instead, the fellow goes out to his car and gets his gun and comes in and shoots because the earth has become corrupt and full of violence. Maybe not in your neighborhood, but you sure know what I'm talking about. And by Genesis 9, post-flood, God instructs Noah to kill animals for food for the first time. But then, even in saying, now look, Noah, go out and kill animals, eat the animals, but be sure you understand what I'm saying, don't cause death to other humans. Because Genesis 9, 5, and 6 has God revealing a restrictive line that Noah is not to cross. He says, for your if someone sheds your blood, I will require a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. That's the laying down of the fundamental principle long before the Ten Commandments, which later becomes the commandment. You shall not murder. The blood of man is sacrosanct. There's a divine principle being stated there. The Holy Spirit is in the man or the woman. John Calvin wrote a comment on that, and he said, Since men bear the image of God in themselves, God deems himself to be violated in their murder. No one can be injurious to his brother, said Calvin, without wounding God himself. You see, Calvin was speaking out of that same idea of the image of God in man. And that is why we who believe the Bible is a pro-life book in every sense, believe that that little thimble or less-sized embryo in the mother's womb when she's just barely aware that she's expecting a child is not a mere blob of inconvenient cells. It's the life that God has given. A life that will become a living soul. A life that in Jeremiah 1.5, the Lord revealed to that prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Human life is to be reverenced in a very unique way. 
And therefore we say, unless Scripture dictates to us any definite exceptions to the general rule, we must conclude that here's the rule. Deliberate killing of a human being, already born or unborn, is an assault upon the image of God. That's the general rule. Now, we derive truth from a very short commandment like you shall not murder by bringing alongside it other Scripture. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. One Scripture helps us understand when a general principle might be stated and then there might be some exceptions. And so secondly, I ask this question, when could the killing of another human possibly be less than a murder? Exodus 20.13 won't tell us this. We have to bring other Scripture alongside, believing that God's Word is a coherent revelation. And God doesn't say something one place and then contradict himself somewhere else. Now, what I'm going to say here in the next few minutes is, uh, is subject matter that any one of the three points I'm going to make, subpoints, could be a long sermon, all right? So I'm just going to skip off these subjects very quickly. But you do need to know that there are exceptions to you shall not murder. One of them would be a human death resulting from self-defense or an accident. And in fact, you have only to go into the very next chapter, Exodus 21, which after the commandments are given, the Lord reveals to Moses some applications and some particularizing instances of how the law should be applied. And verse 12 and following of Exodus 21 gives a whole series of things where there might be accidental deaths, Uh, someone uh, had an oversight, their ox uh, gored the other person and is the owner of the ox, liable for murder, and all these kinds of things. Self-defense or an accident is not regarded as a murder. And the Lord spells this out to make sure people will have an understanding of, of the subtle nuances of these things, of what we in our society would call manslaughter, a lesser crime. You have a terrible traffic accident and You weren't necessarily at fault, but as a result of the traffic accident, someone dies. You only have criminal liability if a great negligence or something can be claimed to to fit your circumstance. But generally speaking, it might well be that you would not be charged. So there are deaths that occur that are not regarded as murder. Another exception, and this is a vast subject that we could spend a lot of time on, occurs when a lawful government that God has recognized uses the right, God-given right, of capital punishment to bring an execution in the case of a capital crime. Now, you well know society debates this today, and our society broadly is is throwing away capital punishment, largely on the, you know, the argument is, well, you might get the wrong person. You might execute somebody who wasn't really guilty. Well, ironically, here we are in a day and age when our science can help us determine that really well as to whether we've got the right person or not, but we're throwing away God's law. Well, you say, how do you know that's God's law? Exodus 21, 12 says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Now, that assumes the deliberate act of homicide. Romans 13 brings a New Testament voice in saying that the civil authority, the governor, is given what's called the power of the sword to act in the place of God and to bring justice and in the ultimate sense 
a life must be taken when a life has been intentionally and wantonly eliminated. Now, again, our society has said we're not going to do that. We don't care what God said. Theologian John Murray wrote about this. He said, any argument that is made against capital punishment that pleads from the sixth commandment to support it is self-contradictory. Murray said, the sacredness of human life that is set forth in the commandment is exactly what capital punishment is aiming to protect. It's because human life is sacred that we must go to that ultimate step when someone deliberately destroys the life of a man or woman. Numbers 35-33 brings the argument that a proven convicted murderer must not be allowed to live, for it says, he defiles the land. He defiles the land, God says. And so God says there is a vengeance, but it's a just vengeance, not put into the hands of individuals, but to the lawful government to go through all the exquisite steps of proof and conviction that a a trial must do. And the state, then, if it comes to the point of executing the murderer, is not committing another murder. It is acting as the hand of God. Huge subject we could spend a lot of time on. I'm leaving it. Thirdly, another exception to the sixth commandment occurs, we believe, in the instance of warfare. Now, we'll get an argument on this one here in Lancaster County, won't we? Many of our brethren, dear Christian brethren in this county, would say, no, warfare is never allowed. Well, here's the consideration. Israel was commanded by God many times to go to war against enemies who, in just about every instance I can think of, were people who were sworn enemies of God. They had denied him. They were idolaters. They hated his people. They hated him. And the Lord said, go in and conquer them. Take their cities. Take their land. And in fact, we're just shocked often to read the Old Testament when the Lord said, go and conquer that people and don't leave one of them alive. Wow. God gets blamed a lot for that one. Well, it's a harsh standard, but it's dealing with people who are anti-God. It's not dealing with some kind of innocent folks who were sitting there minding their own business and God said, wipe them out. It's dealing with people who hated God. Now, I'm not going to get into the justification of Israel's wars here, but it's interesting that even in those situations, Deuteronomy 20.10 presents some rules of engagement and and suggests if you're going to go and conquer a city that I've told you to conquer, go first under a white flag and offer them terms of peace so that perhaps they would surrender and they wouldn't have to be wiped out. Augustine lived five centuries after the time of Christ. He's the one who helped out the cause of Christian faith by coming up with what he called the principles of a just War, and that's been debated ever since his time. It's based broadly on biblical ideas and biblical arguments. Justin, uh, Augustine said, and the basic principle is pretty simple. It really is if you're attacked, you're allowed to defend yourself. If your weak and vulnerable neighbor is your friend and they're attacked, you're allowed to defend them. But don't you be the predator. Don't you be the, the one who's going out just to wipe other people out because you don't like them or you want their land. World War II, many would say, is one of the clearest examples, at least from the Allied cause side, of a just war. 
allied countries were attacked by those who desired to take them over, those who desired to bring ungodly ideas to bear of genocide and other things, and they fought back. And people would say there's one of the clearest large-scale examples of a just war that we've ever had. I'll editorialize, we've fought some wars since then that are not at all clearly defined as just wars, but that's another subject. But surely in a day of aggressive terrorism like we face today, the broad principles of defend yourself and defend your weak neighbor allow for a strong national defense, which, though, must be used with great discretion and great restraint. And the more powerful the nation is, such as our own, the more discretion and the more restraint ought to be exercised. Now, those are things in which we could say, if someone dies in that situation, warfare, self-defense, accident, capital punishment, we don't think we're violating the commandment, that they are exceptions. All right, let's leave that behind now. But let's go to what Jesus had to say by intensifying this commandment and taking it inwardly. And this is where it really begins to come home to us. As he spoke in Matthew 5.22, he was talking about the commandment. And he said, look, I don't want you to think, well, I'm pretty good. I've never murdered anybody, and I would certainly never do that. He said, wait a minute. Everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever so looks down condescendingly and bitterly at his brother, his neighbor, and says, you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. He was saying that murder begins in a root of anger and resentment, and we who've never shot anybody never stabbed anybody, and would never think of doing that, are nevertheless in the docket. Because where murder begins is inside. And it's got its roots in all of us. There's homicide of the heart. That 1 John 3.15 states, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, you're looking at a a preacher who never used to like mysteries, but has begun to read mysteries late in life. Carol and I have discovered a British author, P.D. James. She's a woman. Uses that. That's not her real name, but P.D. James is her writing name. One of the finest mystery writers there could possibly be. And we've just been devouring her mysteries. So here I am, enjoying murder, and figuring out who done it. And just a matter of weeks ago, I reread P.D. James, one of her books called The Murder Room. In this particular book, she sets the scene in a museum in London devoted to 18th and 19th century British life, and there's a particular room that's one of the most fascinating things that brings people to the museum because this particular room is devoted entirely to the history of crime and particularly spectacular murders. Jack the Ripper, all these kinds of things, are really you know notorious murders that occurred in London are featured, and artifacts are there, weapons are there, the clothing of victim is there, and so on. And people come, and oh, they want to ogle that and see that. Well, the interesting 
uh, angle of the book is the two murders occur, one in that room and one just outside the building that mimic the circumstances of the historic murders on display. But go read the book if you want to. But uh, the reason I mention that is because it made me think of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, that we are like people who have in our hearts, in our minds, unseen by anyone else, an invisible room in which we store the artifacts and even the imaginary bodies of people we would be happy to see eliminated from our lives by any means whatsoever. The professor who caused you great grief with your degree and and you had to repeat a whole class or, or do something over again because he just made trouble for you. The, the manager at your work that maybe made you lose your job or get laid off or cruelly evaluated you in a wrong fashion. The relative with whom you have that grinding uh, relationship that you cannot get along with after decades and you would say, if I could eliminate that person from my family tree, I can't say this at the, you know, at the annual relatives convention, but if I could have that person not be there and not be alive at all, I'd be very gleeful. Or if I could see that person suffer a public humiliation that would bring them down and show how they've hurt others, oh, how sweet that would be. Now, you don't dare say that. You don't say it to the pastor, but you think it. Pastors see examples, and I'm going to say husbands because you are worse husbands than your wives are, generally speaking, of husbands who use words against their wives like weapons. They are arrogant. They are demeaning. Every day, compliment, word of love, word of affection, no, sir. These husbands fulfill Proverbs twelve eighteen, which says rash words are like sword thrusts, and they do it day in, day out, until their wives are emotionally shredded. These men have their wives in a secret murder room, and maybe the wife is ready to have him in her murder room. The weapons we use are criticism, gossip, prejudice, judgmentalism, degrading conversation with one another, and the kind of blood we spill is mostly invisible, but the Lord God sees it. Human anger leaves many people, Christians included, with roots of murder in their hearts. And until we begin to face this ugliness about ourselves with some kind of honest confession and repentance before God, there's no chance of that murder room ever being opened up and the fresh air of grace and forgiveness and transformation and reconciliation getting in there. Do you know Jesus himself was the only person who ever perfectly obeyed the sixth commandment? He didn't even have the roots of murder and resentment in his heart, even though he had very good grounds for it. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and afflicted. He had done no violence, but he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. 1 Peter 2, 23. 
says even more graphically, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Have you forgotten the fact that Jesus was murdered? I bought a book about 10 years ago. It was entitled, The Murder of Jesus. It's simply a book about his death. I put it on the shelf with other books about the cross, but yet it stuck out on the shelf because the title was in big red letters on the spine, The Murder of Jesus. And it, it made me think, yes, Jesus was a murder victim. His trial was unjust. It was illegal. He was never convicted of anything. He was taken out by angry men who were determined he should die, and they killed him with a semblance of Roman justice, but it was not just. Here's a man who had everything to harbor in his heart. Boy, if Jesus built a murder room against the people who wronged him, imagine it. It was bigger than this room in order to fit everybody in. But the Scripture says he didn't have such a room. He didn't hold those kinds of thoughts about people. In fact, what did he do on the cross? The very people, the very soldier who was going to stick the spear in his side, the very soldier who had pounded the nails into his hands, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Because of the death of Jesus in the sinner's place, because of the righteous obedience of of Jesus to God's law in every single part of There's grace for murderers. There's grace for murderers on death row in the prisons of Pennsylvania. There's grace for murderers in the third and the fifth and the seventh row in the corner of the balcony and this side too. There's grace for all of us. With the hatreds we've piled up in the murder closets, yes, It's a morgue, isn't it? What do you call a place where there are dead bodies? A morgue. We all have morgues. Most of us do. Do you know when Jesus healed his friend Lazarus, not just healed him, but raised him from the dead? Lazarus came out of the tomb. John 11 describes it. Do you remember what Jesus told the bystanders to do? Take off his grave clothes. That clothing stinks of death. He needs new clothing. He's got a new life. He needs new clothing. Christian, you've got a new life. You need that morgue cleaned out. The way you begin is to go to God and confess that festering, decaying, ugly relationship that you have with somebody. Maybe it's a divorced spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a a rebellious adult child a neighbor, a co-worker. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's all of the above. You need to confess that to your God. Name it for what it is and say, God, I have thought about that person and I would have been happy if that person could have dropped into a crevasse in the earth and never been seen again. I won't go kill him. You know that, Lord, but I sure would be happy if he was dead. Start by confessing that to the Lord, naming it, naming the person, unburdening to the Lord what's festering in your morgue, because Christ can unlock that place that you have so closely tended. And you see, this sixth commandment that teaches reverence for life means that we must not only not go out and shoot people, 
but it means we must value the lives of people we interact with, Christian and non-Christian, likable and unlikable, argumentative and peaceable. We must seek to live peaceably with all men as far as it's possible for us to do. We are called to active reconciliation with others. Why? Because God reconciled himself with us in the blood of his Son. And those who've been forgiven by that blood must be forgivers. And so when you bow in sincere repentance before the cross of Christ and acknowledge the hateful thoughts you've kept buried in your personal morgue, let me tell you this. The first life that is going to be saved is going to be your own. Thanks be to God. Father, your word tells us powerful things. Thank you for telling us today not just to not go around shooting people and harming people, but to examine the roots of murder in us. Thank you for Jesus, whose death covers all our hatreds. Lord, help us to be honest. Help us to confess what's going on in our relationships. Cleanse us. Take off those grave clothes that we're keeping on some shelf to admire as if they had some value. Forgive us. Make us new. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.